So let's open with a word of prayer. We're going to be in the Gospel of John, chapter 12 today. And if you want to pull it up on your phones and follow, uh, I'm going to be reading from the Amplified. I've, lately I've been in the Amplified and I just can't get out of it. I absolutely love it. It adds so much insight uh, and it just brings out so many different shades of meaning as you read that you don't necessarily always get from um, just a one word by word translation that we have in most of our Bibles. Let's open in a word of prayer. God, thank you today. Thank you for you being who you are and loving us. And as we sang some of these songs, sending your son to die for us and to open heaven's door for us. Lord, we thank you. We praise you. Lord, uh, we just ask for your blessing upon this time in uh, the word. Open it to us, Lord. Enable me to speak as I should, Lord. I have nothing of my own self, Lord. We want to hear from you, God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So it's an exciting gospel. Uh, the story is exciting and the progression. I love the progression as you go through the gospel. It's all, it's all headed towards the, the death, the burial, and then, of course, the resurrection. And we get to chapter 12. And let's just start in here. We're going to read a verse or two, talk about it, and just kind of go through uh, verse by verse here. We're not, it's a really long chapter. We're not going to make it. There's no way we're going to get the whole chapter. And next week, Stephen will be in chapter 13. We're just going to go as far as we can here, though, today. Okay, notice in verse 1 the time frame. I think this is very important. Of all the events that are happening in this chapter, it opens with the time frame of where things are at here. Six days before the Passover. This is the last week before Jesus is crucified. Okay, we're right at the end. And the rest of the book of John takes place in this last week. Six days before the Passover, Jesus went to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom he had raised from the dead. Now, this had to be awesome. The fact that Lazarus had been raised from the dead, and you could actually go there, and lots of people were to see this crazy thing that had happened. He had been in the grave four days. When Jesus called him forth, that was last week's um, sermon that Stephen did. Uh, he'd been in there four days, and they were a little bit worried. They said, Lord, he stinks already. What do you mean he's going to live? And Jesus calls him forth. And you remember the story. He says he comes out bound hand and foot. Now, I wonder what that looked like. Was it like one of the mummy movies? You know, uh, if you go back to the really old mummy movies, was it, you know, you know, this sort of thing, uh, the ones they made back in the 50s or 60s? Or was it more like, uh, uh, you know, one of these crazy science fiction shows and maybe he levitated, you know, and, and was shining and, you know, out he comes? We don't know. He was bound, it says, hand and foot face was wrapped, everything, and out he comes, and Jesus, I mean, it must have been a sight to behold, must have been kind of freaky in some ways, and Jesus says, take all that stuff off him, loose him, let him go. And you remember as he was, as they were leading up to the event, he said, I am the resurrection and 
the life. Well, I know he'll live on the last day. No, I am the resurrection and the life. And there was a preacher years ago on that text that said, you know, Jesus was very selective when he said, when he called them out, he said, Lazarus, come forth. Because if he had called any other names, they, any of them would have come forth. He is the resurrection and the life. And you know, the amazing thing is, after his resurrection, uh, the miracles just kept happening uh, along these lines because it's kind of like one of these movies you watch lately where everybody's doing these movies about the returned and, you know, people coming back to, to, to life. And, and it says that there was a whole bunch of people who had been dead for a long time that raised from the dead. Jesus raised them from the dead when he did and, and afterwards appeared in Jerusalem to a lot of people. How freaky is that? How crazy is that? And the amazing thing is for all the miracles that Jesus did, it had a profound effect upon those who had a heart inclined towards God. Dramatic effect. But those whose hearts were hardened and had, had chosen, they were, you know, there's just nothing that was ever going to, to move them to come to God. There was nothing that could be done. It's like the story of the rich man. Um, uh, uh, who is the, the, the poor guy? I'm forgetting, my, forgetting the name here. But remember, um, uh, they both died. And uh, was it? I don't remember. It's okay. But the, the guy that knew God, remember, he's in paradise. And the rich guy, he was in hell. And in, it says in torment. And in torment in the flames, he lifted his eyes and he could see the other side and the, the bosom of Abraham and the, and the comfort that was there and the torment that he was in. And uh, he pleads with the Lord or with Abraham, send, you know, send somebody back. If somebody went back from the dead, then they would believe. I don't want my family to come to this place of torment. And Jesus said, if they don't hear the prophets, they will not be persuaded even if somebody were to raise from the dead. Now, sometimes you can take things like that and, and, and kind of say, well, then miracles have no value. Miracles have no point. No, no, they do. You read the stories of the gospel. You get into the book of Acts and you see the Lord showing up and doing signs and wonders through the hands of the apostles. It dramatically affected the people uh, that, um, that saw what was happening. And it, but again, in two camps, those who had a heart towards God, there was something there. There was an interest. It had a dramatic effect on them. Those who had no interest, those whose uh, plan was to, to live life, no matter what, separate from God, that's where they stayed. But it did have a dramatic effect on those who were being called by God. So this must have been awesome to show up here. And here's Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So, so they gave a supper for him there. Of course, why wouldn't you? I mean, this is a time of, of thankfulness, gratitude. He's the guest of honor. Not only is he the Lord and he's the Messiah, he's their teacher, but he's just raised the brother of these two sisters from the dead. Of course, they're going to give a supper for him. Uh, Martha was serving. Lazarus was one of those reclining at the table with him. 
Then Mary took a pound of very expensive perfume of pure nard, and she poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair, and the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, the one who was going to betray him, said, Why was this perfume not sold for 300 denarii and the money given to the poor? Now he said this, not because he cared about the poor, for he had never cared about them, but because he was a thief. And since he had the money box serving as treasurer for the twelve disciples, he used to pilfer what was put into it. So Jesus said, Let her alone so that she may keep the rest of it for the day of my burial. You always have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. And I think there's a lot we can learn from this passage. There's some conjecture at this point here of how much Mary knew. Now this much we know for sure that she knew. She knew that Jesus had just raised her dead brother to life. And at a minimum what she was doing, she took this, this box of perfume. Now a conservative in today's money, a pretty conservative estimate of the value of this would be in today's money $40,000. And that's a conservative estimate. Okay, she takes this, in today's money, $40,000 treasure of this crazy expensive perfume, breaks it, and pours it on the feet of Jesus. Now there's conjecture that she may have known more than just on the surface here. Okay, and I think there's some truth to it, because you read through the story, the Jews, those of the Jews who were never going to be persuaded no matter what, this was pretty much the final straw. Jesus had to die. They already wanted to kill him, but there was no question now. They could not have this man doing everything he was doing. They could not have him now raising people from the dead who should have been stinking by now. They could not have it. He had to die. And Mary may have realized that. She may have realized that this last act of kindness by Jesus saved her brother's life, but was the final, I mean, we know it was going to happen anyways. It was God's will, but in a very, God, He had to go to the cross and die. Jesus knew that. It was the plan from the beginning, but in a very real practical sense, it was the final thing that guaranteed they were going to come. She may have been aware of that. How much she understood at that point also that what Jesus was going to do to literally pay the price for her sins, we don't know how much of that she knew. But it's possible she may have had a sense of a lot of that. At a minimum, she knew Jesus had raised her brother from the dead. And in absolute gratitude, and possibly as well gratitude that he gave his life for her brothers, and was getting ready to sacrifice himself for her sins and the sins of the world, she takes this crazy expensive box of perfume, breaks it, and anoints them. Now what's interesting is the response of everybody. This Gospel records Judas Iscariot's response. How dare she? What a waste! Why wasn't this given to the poor? What's interesting, you look at the other Gospels, every group of people that was there highly and severely criticized Mary for what she did. There wasn't, everybody did. 
Nobody was happy with what Mary did. They all thought it was a waste and it should have been given to the poor. Jesus didn't look at it that way. And I think we can learn from this. He says, let her alone. And yet I like this statement. You always have the poor with you. You don't always have me. And in a very real sense, that was obviously, I mean, we don't have Jesus in the flesh with us today. He's with us in the spirit. But I think what we can learn here about giving, and I think we can apply this to a lot of different situations. Oftentimes we are, as humans, are too quick to judge others for how they give. What, you know, giving is supposed to be, Jesus' instruction was, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. Let your giving be in secret. Now, sometimes there are cases like this where there's no way to hide what she was doing. And sometimes there's going to be ways that you give that there's no way to do it secretly. No way to do it discreetly. But on the general rule, it's good to just give quietly, unnoticed, and God sees and God rewards the heart. But giving, we should be probably remember when people give, they can give. There's so many different ways. You can give your money to different ministries. Uh, you can give time. I know I've fallen into this, uh, this scenario where somebody will tell you, you know, I, I, I give to the Lord in this particular ministry. And you're like, how's that even a ministry? You motorcycle? You've heard, but you know what? It's not, guys, it's it's what's in the heart. And this gift that Mary gave, even though it looked outrageously wasteful, stupid, it made no sense to any group of people that were there. It absolutely blessed. I want you to get this. It blessed the heart of Jesus more than we even know. And I think we need to remember when people give, let's don't be quick to judge them and try to, we, that's really not our business. They're, they're giving whatever they give to the Lord. And they may be blessing the heart of the Lord more than we have any idea. Some of the things that we might be most critical of, God may look and say, no, I see their heart. They are doing this for me. And here's the thing, we have the poor always. There are always opportunities that we can give to the poor, to the less fortunate, and that's awesome. And the scripture tells us to do that, but sometimes your giving may take on a nature that is more, may not make a whole lot of sense, may not be the most practical thing, but it simply blesses the heart of God. It blesses him. It makes him thrilled, makes him happy that you saw whatever and chose to do it unto God to please him and as a gift and an offering to him. Everyone criticized what she did. Jesus absolutely loved it. And I think it's all four Gospels that record this story. A lot of stories don't make it into all four Gospels. Uh, this story was apparently very important. Verse 9, a large crowd of Jews learned that he was there at Bethany, and they came not only because of Jesus, but also to see Lazarus. Okay, this thing was spreading like wildfire. Um, uh, jump down, and let's read a verse where, um, in verse 19, 
look what's happening here. Because so many, they just can't stop talking. The people that were there and witnessed, witnessed this event were telling everybody about it. And the Pharisees argued and said to one another, You see that your efforts are futile. Look, the whole world is running after him. They had to get rid of him. It couldn't be allowed. And this thing with Lazarus was absolutely creating a momentum that was unbelievable at this point here towards the end of Jesus' time. So they came not only because of Jesus, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief police, they start planning, it says here, to kill Lazarus also. Because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away from the teaching and tradition of the Jewish leaders and believing in Jesus, following him as Savior and Messiah. Now, what's so bad about that? What is so bad about people going away from dead teachings, religious teachings with no life, and following Jesus as Savior and Messiah? It was what Jesus came to do, was to get people saved, to get people into the kingdom. He is the light of the world. He is the door. By, by me, he said, if any man enters in, you will be saved, and you will go in and out and find pasture. I am the light of the world. I am the bread of life. If you eat of this, you will not die. I give them eternal life. They will never perish. And then he had all the miracles and signs and wonders and words. It was both. He had the words. You know, uh, one of the chapters we were in recently uh, where the Jews sent people, uh, guards, whatever, authorities to arrest Jesus. And they came back and they had, and they said, why didn't you? Nobody ever spoke like this man. They were absolutely just enthralled by what they were hearing. It was what he was preaching. It was what they were hearing. And it was what they were seeing. The miracles were there confirming that he, in fact, was who he said he was, the Son of God. So on account of him, again, don't discount the fact of the supernatural things that God does. And, and, and when we talk about supernatural things, let's, let's, let's pare this down to some other things other than what we just typically think of. A changed life is also supernatural. When you start showing the love of Jesus, it's because there's a supernatural work of God that's going in your life. And that kind of counts in my book as the sort of stuff that God does. If I think of different ways I've seen the Lord impact people, Yes, it's awesome when God does some miraculous. I, you've told you before, I had mono just recently for two years, and a few months ago, a uh, friend here at church prayed over me, and uh, the next night, I, I knew it when it happened. It was awesome. God touched me. I knew it the second it happened, and He healed me. I'd had it for two years. I was miserable, barely getting through work. And uh, what's really cool is that my job... Uh, uh, I get to work with the same clients over and over. They kind of keep us all paired up with your clients or your clients, and you always see your people. And it's been really cool. Person after person sits down at my desk over the last months. Tim, you look so good. What's going on? 
And I says, well, you know, I tried this, I tried that, it helped a little, and then I got worse, I couldn't kick it, and then you know what, I asked, I asked a friend, actually, I said, a friend at, at church asked if he could pray for me, and he did. And the next night, God healed me. And they're just like, really? Whoa! And I had one lady, she's a, a devout Jew, she doesn't know the Lord, and when I told her, she, her mouth dropped open, she goes, oh my goodness, the power of God. And she got him, and she was absolutely astounded. And it kind of reminds me of the, of the verse where Paul says he's, that God is using the church today, which is made up of Gentiles and Jews, to provoke to jealousy the Jews today that still don't believe. Because there they are in a form and in a fashion, seeking after God, but they don't know Him. And they're as far away from the truth as anything, but there they are, very religious. They have the scriptures, all these things. And God says, I'm going to provoke you to jealousy by a people that were not my people, but are going to be. And I'm going to use them to provoke you to jealousy. And you know, in the end, there's, lot, there's plenty of Jews. There's a lot of Jews that got saved, uh, you know, right after Jesus' time. Uh, you get to the book of Acts, and at one point they say, you see how many myriads, it's thousands, thousands upon thousands of Jews that believe. God was doing a work. God saved a lot of Jews, uh, and He saved a whole lot more Gentiles. God is doing a work. So let's jump down, verse 12. Now you've got the triumphal entry. The next day when the large crowd who had come to the Passover feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, now I want you to notice again what's going on as we get into the story. What they're doing, honoring Jesus as King, giving Him praise and glory, and notice the little interjection in here as we read through it about Lazarus again. It's a big effect and a big reason why they're here at this point doing this. Read the story. They took branches of palm trees and homage to him as king and went out to meet him. And they began shouting and kept shouting, Hosanna, blessed, celebrated, praised is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. And Jesus, finding a young donkey, sat on it, just as is written in Scripture, Do not fear, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand the meaning of these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified and exalted, they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. So the people who were with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to tell others about him. For this reason the crowd went to meet him, because they had heard that he had performed this miraculous sign. Reminds me of uh, the story in Acts of Peter when it was, I think, Doris? Was it perhaps the case when, he, when uh, Doris was raised from the dead? Or was that Paul? Peter, I believe it was. And it says the whole region heard what happened. The whole region heard what had happened, and many, many, note that word, believed on Jesus. Okay, the effect of these supernatural things that God does, which includes transformed lives. You know, I love supernatural healing, but in my entire life I've only been supernaturally healed two or three times. You know, the rest of the time you just have to, like anybody else, you got to go to the doctor. You got to get something. Um, I remember a, 
when my dad was a missionary in, in Nigeria, uh, he was friends with a, a Christian doctor there, and, and they were talking one day, and there was, God was doing supernatural things in, in, in Nigeria that were just crazy at this point, healing people and all kinds of things. But this doctor said, he said, you know, basically, it's awesome when God heals a person, but on the other side of things, if you can take two aspirin and destroy the works of the desert, praise and glory be to God. Right? Sometimes we need the conventional blessings that God has given us. We need that too. So the, the supernatural, and when I think about the effect, I'll give an example. My wife uh, was friends when she was in real estate with uh, another realtor uh, lady and her husband. And he was kind of a weak Christian. It kind of drifted away from the Lord. She didn't know the Lord ever, never had. And she was, she's an awesome lady, uh, real character. But Kimber just, you know, she was a friend with him. She'd just be herself, and she talked about what the Lord was doing in her life and how the Lord answered prayers, just being the person that she is, never afraid to just talk her real life. It was interesting. Before long, the two of them started going to church. Uh, the man got really on fire for the Lord again, walking with the Lord. And before long, she got saved, and she's walking with the Lord now, too. You see, I, I'll give you another example. When we were in Russia, uh, we were friends with a young couple. And uh, we had shared the gospel with them. Jim and Fran had shared the gospel with them. Uh, that didn't get them saved, although that's important. They got saved three years later when we left. Right before we left, they got saved. And they came over to our house very excited to tell us that they now knew the Lord. And you know what they said? They said, we never really got the words that you said. You guys told us, but we just weren't getting it. They said, but we've been this whole time just watching you guys. You guys have gone through a lot of hard things. And, um, you know, we've seen how you react. And so you have your bad days. You have your days when you're angry, you're upset. But through this whole thing, we saw something different in you. And that's what was getting to us. We saw something different in you. That's the supernatural work of God. So, yes, hallelujah, when God does some crazy, like a supernatural healing. But there is just your supernatural daily experience with God, which I think we forget that whole part of the Christian life is supernatural in its own way. And if you are not a believer, you don't have it. They continue to tell others about Him. Your efforts are futile. The whole world has gone running after. Now, we roll into verse 20. It's just culminating into what the whole purpose that Jesus is here for. Check this out. Now there were some Greeks. Now at this point in time, Gentiles, anybody who was not a Jew, they instead of calling them Gentiles, they just gave a generic term for them, which was Greeks. So there were some Greeks. That would probably be considered racist today, <laughs> right? <laughs> give one term for anybody that's not some certain whatever. There were some Greeks, Gentiles, among those who were going up to worship at the feast. These came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, with a request saying, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. See now even the Gentiles. So much crazy in a good way is going now on. Even the Gentiles now 
are being exposed and starting to hear. And really, guys, this is what the whole thing is about. Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip came and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And listen to what Jesus says. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified and exalted. This was important, that right now at this point, now the Gentiles are getting exposed and are getting an interest also, because the truth is the biggest explosion of Christianity was going to be to the Gentiles, to the entire world. And the Jews would have some blessing, but for the most part, uh, they're going to miss out. Now, we know from prophecy that at the end, Armageddon happens, two-thirds of the Jews are killed, there's one-third left, and that's the point when all Israel is saved. It says the Spirit of God is going to come upon the people who are left, the Jews, the women by themselves, the men by themselves, a supernatural work of God. And they're going to all kind of break down and go, oh my goodness, Jesus was our Messiah all along. And they're going to recognize him, cry out to him. And that's the point he returns and saves them from final destruction and returns to this earth. Um, but the point in, in the between, between then, back then and the end is God is going to reach the ends of the earth. You know, it's, it's what he's always wanted to do. The Jews were supposed to be the light to the world. They failed. They failed. And you know, you see the symbology of it even uh, in like the building of the temple. All those different things had a lot of symbolic meaning and spoke of Christ, spoke of the work he was going to do. And I love this huge basin for washing water that speaks of cleansing. And you know what this basin, cleansing, forgiveness, being pure and clean before God, you know what it sat upon in the temple? It sat upon 12 oxen. And it says three were pointing towards the north, three were pointing towards the south, three were pointing towards the east, three were pointing to the west. It was a symbolic picture way back then of what God wanted to do and what he was actually finally going to do when Jesus came. And, and like Jesus said to the Jews, the kingdom of God is going to be taken from you and given to a nation that will bring forth the fruits of it. And interesting enough, Jesus, what does he do? There's 12 tribes of Israel. They failed to go north, south, east, and west like they were supposed to and take the true message. They failed. He chooses 12 disciples who become apostles and tells them, go into all the world. North, south, east, west. Preach the gospel to every creature. And they did. And they turned the world upside down. And we see the fruit of it today. And we all are all part of that blessing today. So you have the crowd, and it's kind of anticlimactic because it's like the nation of Israel almost is there, but not quite. They're recognizing him as king, and then a few days later, they crucify him. Probably some of these same people because he didn't fulfill what their expectation was that he would save them from Rome. That wasn't what he was about. That day is coming when there's a physical kingdom, but it wasn't now. So the, the Greeks, we wish to see them. 
I assure you, most solemnly say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone, just one grain, never more. But if it dies, it produces much grain and yields a harvest. The one who loves his life eventually loses it through death, but the one who hates his life in this world and is concerned with pleasing God will keep it for life eternal. If anyone serves me, he must continue to faithfully follow me without hesitation, holding steadfastly to me, conforming to my example and in living, and if need be, suffering or perhaps dying because of faith in me. And wherever I am in heaven's glory, there will my servant be also. If any man, if anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. I love this. Jesus said, now is the time. Now the Gentiles are interested. Now the Gentiles are starting to seek me. This is what it was all about. I want to reach the whole world, everybody. One body made up of Jews and Gentiles. The doors open to everybody now. No one excluded. Anybody who wants the free gift gets to come. Now is the time for the Son of Man to be glorified and exalted. I like that he was able to look past the cross at this point, which was going to be horrendous, and see there's a resurrection at the end of it, and I'm actually going through this to be glorified and exalted. If a grain just stays alone, it doesn't allow itself, a grain of wheat to be planted into the earth, it just stays alone. But if it goes in and dies, then this plant comes up and produces a crop, produces a harvest. He compares this illustration to his death and the fact that the way he's going to bring the people into God's kingdom, he had to die to give life. That had to happen. And then he makes an interesting thing here, a point, and relates it to us of how we are to live. In the same way, not necessarily going to a physical cross, although sometimes that has happened. But he says, you got to hate your life in this world and be concerned instead with pleasing God. In other words, in one sense, we are all to be like a grain of wheat that goes in the ground and dies. And if we don't, if we aren't willing to do that, if we aren't willing to surrender completely to God what He wants and live a life for Him, you live a life where it's your, the fruit doesn't happen, just alone. The fruit doesn't happen. But if you'll go into the ground and die, so to speak, give up the self-life, gain a God-life, then the fruit happens. If anyone serves me, continually to faithful, follow me. I love this. Without hesitation, holding steadfastly to me, conforming to my example and living, and if need be, suffering or perhaps dying because of faith in me, wherever I am, in heaven's glory, there will my servant be also. And we know today Jesus is in heaven, in glory, and here through the Spirit. And wherever Jesus is, if we live for him, we'll be where he is. He will be guiding and directing us, and we'll be on track with Him. So we could go further, but we're going to run out of time. Let's back up here to one thing that I missed here in, a pre, in the triumphal entry story. I love this phrase. His, verse 16, His disciples did not understand the meaning of these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified and exalted, they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. 
See, these guys were living in a, in a time when prophecy after prophecy after prophecy was literally being fulfilled before their eyes. They didn't always even realize it when it was happening. All the implications and all the meaning of it, they weren't always completely aware that God had already written this thousands of years before exactly what was going to happen and exactly what He was going to do. But later on, they did. They got it. They looked back and went, oh my goodness, that was what God had written. Oh my goodness. And we watched it. Now, that's really cool. But you know, we get to do the same thing. And we're probably, we're probably just like them. I would venture to say that you have watched all kinds of things happen and probably didn't realize it had been written, that it was going to be just like that. And there's lots of, lots of examples you could make, some of them prophetic. Like, for example, in the last days, this was written some thousands of years ago, knowledge will be increased. Have you ever been to a seminar where they go and they show the graph of what, in the, in the last few decades, what knowledge has started to do, and the exponential growth and the explosion of knowledge on a level, and it, and it just keeps bursting out bigger and bigger and bigger, and we're probably still just on the tip of the iceberg. Do you realize that was written by Daniel? Thousands of years ago, then the last days, that was what was going to, one of many things that was going to happen. The one world government, uh, we, you know, there's been so many attempts in my lifetime for world leaders to try to pull it off. It's not time yet. God shuts it down. Uh, I remember being on vacation in, uh, um, oh, the Geyser Park. What's that called? Where all the geysers are? Yellowstone, yes. Came back from a day out on vacation and went to the hotel room, turned on the TV just to hear the recap on the news, and this is what I heard. Today, Gorbachev said, some of you are old enough to remember this, today Gorbachev said, it is now time for all nations of the world to come together under one government. Turns out, the first President Bush, Gorbachev, and the Pope had been working very diligently behind the scenes to try to pull off a one-world government. There's been attempts since then to do it. It's not time yet, but we know the crazy thing is that it was written that this is what's going to happen. There's going to be a one-world government. This is how it ends. Humanity's history ends in a one-world government uh, for seven years before Jesus returns. There's been attempts since then. Just readings the other day, uh, what's going on in Europe, a news article, and it really pointed out of what's going on, uh, I won't go into detail, but it, the, the writer said, the reality is, everything that's been done there in the last decade or so, the point of it and the purpose has been to create a one world government. This was a step. If we do this and this and this, we can create a one world government. It's not working too well. But that was the plan. Again, God's shutting it down. It's not time yet. It's not time yet. When it's time, it's going to happen. I remember my, um, used to take organ lessons years ago when I was a kid and uh, would go see my, my teacher. She was an elderly lady. Uh, you know how you are when you're a kid. If you're 70, you're ancient. She was probably about 70. And uh, her mother was 90 at that point and uh, still going strong. And, and I remember she told me, she, we were talking one day, and she says, you know, when I was a kid, I used to read Revelation. I just couldn't figure out some of the things in there. She goes, like, for example, it said, you know, like when the two witnesses are killed, and it says the whole world is going to watch. 
And then, the, when, and then when the rays from the, the whole world watches it, she goes, and I thought, as a kid, how does that, would that even happen? How, how can the whole world watch an event? She goes, and then some years later, television came along, and then TV news coverage, and we literally now sit and watch anywhere in the world, big events, the whole world watches. You know, interesting, here it is in Revelation, it's written 2,000 years ago, that when this particular event happens, the whole world is going to watch it. That was prophesied. But you know, there's all kinds of other things that you're experiencing today, and maybe you need to experience more, we probably all do, that were also prophesied by Jesus. You know, if you look, I was thinking, I had never looked at, looked at it in this light before, but when you look about all the things that Jesus tells His disciples in these last days, and there's a whole bunch of them in the next chapters of John, essentially, He's prophesying. He's telling the future. He's telling what it's going to be like in church life to be a Christian. He knows. And it's written just like this. It's written. For, for example, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit. He's the comforter. He will guide you into all truth. Do you realize that was the truth written before the reality of it? And you're experiencing and living it today. By this wall, men know that you are my disciples. If you have love for one another, you know what? That's written. And you're living it today. And you experience it as you walk in love. You see it. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works. How about this one? Here he talks about the sending of the Holy Spirit. And, he say, and he, he's talk, telling them how he has to go away to the Father. And they're sorrowful. But he says, don't be. He says, it's to your advantage that I go away. Because if I don't go away, I won't send the Holy Spirit. If I go away, I will send the Holy Spirit. And then he makes this crazy statement. He says, anybody, any Christian who follows me and obeys me, he says, we're going to, we, me and my father, we are going to be revealing ourselves to that person. And I say, well, how? He says, well, if anyone will keep my word, he says, we're going to show up. That person will enjoy something in the Spirit called fellowship with God, and we will be showing him things. Jesus, another statement said, he said, when I send the Holy Spirit, he will show you things to come. How many of you had an experience where God, however, informs you of something that's about to happen or going to happen? And then you get to literally sit back and watch it happen. How many of you had that experience? If you haven't, maybe get closer to God. How many of you have the Holy have Jesus revealing Himself to you as you get into the Word? If you don't have it yet, get there. That's what He wants to do. He wants to meet with us. He gave a promise. Me and my Father will show up and we will be revealing ourselves to you. It was written. And anything that's been written, we'll either see it or things that are meant for kind of everyday life, we can experience it. If it's been written, we can experience it. It's there. Just have to seek it. We are privileged to be children of God. What God did is absolutely awesome. The scripture is amazing. And it's a privilege to be a member of the body of Christ. God bless you.